Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we go deep and learn what is going on in all the climate executive decisions from the new Biden administration. Joining me is recurring guest Dr. Jesse Keenan from Tulane University. Jesse walks us through some of the key decisions that have been made and where adaptation stands in President Biden's overall climate strategy based on some of the early staffing and policy decisions. Also returning is Judge Alice Hill in another short adaptation segment where Alice discusses what it will take for FEMA to take climate change seriously. That is the title of a new article she's written and she comes on to discuss. Great to have both Jesse and Alice back on the show. Okay, we have started a bi-weekly newsletter here at America Adapts. We highlight the latest episode and news and stories related to that episode's topic. We also highlight other climate podcasts and share a few other adaptation-related goodies. In the show notes, there is a link to subscribe, so please do. Okay, coming up next on America Adapts is Sherry Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for Climate and Security and considered the godmother of climate change and national security. Looking forward to sharing that conversation. Okay, adapters, let's join Jesse Keenan and learn what's happening in the executive branch on all things climate change. Hey, adapters, welcome back to a very exciting episode. Returning to the pod is frequent guest Dr. Jesse Keenan. Jesse is an associate professor of real estate at the School of Architecture at Tulane University. Welcome back, Jesse. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Okay, Jesse, it's a very exciting time. We are in the early days of a Biden administration, and it's all things climate change. And so I brought you on because you've got your finger on the pulse of a lot of what's going on. So many things that it's like almost daily that we're hearing these announcements. And I thought it'd be really useful for you to come on and kind of give us some structure of what Biden is doing in, in regards to climate change. And so before we dig down into executive orders and down in, into the weeds like that, I thought maybe you could more broadly tell us what's going on with President Biden and his climate momentum. Well, I think there is a lot of momentum, if only emotionally, to reinvigorate, remobilize the expertise, the political momentum, um, the groundswell of that it's going to take to advance climate policy. And that's really critical. And I think, you know, in many ways, it's sort of interesting from an adaptation point of view. We've got going back to the 1970s and the energy crisis, you know, we've got several, really two generations or more of expertise in energy and climate mitigation. And I think they're well represented in the administration and then the, the underlying emerging policy of the administration. But we really only have um, maybe a half a generation, a de- little over a decade's worth of domestic American experience uh, and expertise in climate adaptation and resilience. And so it's really interesting to see, you know, this is really the first uh, new administration that's had to sort of sort through the realm of adaptation. But I think across the board, the, that momentum is something that's palpable and, and hopefully they can tap into to, to affect some real change. So we're going to dig into what Biden's doing. But first, I thought it'd also be useful. It's been a busy couple weeks for adaptation. And just even this past week, the Climate Adaptation Summit was hosted in Netherlands and the Global Center on Adaptation. So why was that significant? And what were some of the themes of that big summit? Well, you have to kind of go back to the origins of the Global Center on Adaptation. This was Ban Ki-moon, outgoing Secretary General of the United Nations, Bill Gates, and, you know, some sort of establishment really honing in on the value of adaptation, both global north, global south, and advancing that dialogue, which historically at the IPCC and elsewhere among the Conference of Parties had been sort of second fiddle, obviously, to climate mitigation over the years. And I think in many ways they wanted to amplify that voice. Uh, on some level, the Netherlands has sort of co-opted it in, in their, through their own lens. And there's nothing wrong or, you know, right about that. Sometimes it has a very strong Dutch feel to it. But I think when you look at it thematically, there's good work there. It certainly advances an, a network of policy and practice. And I think the conversation is important. I think when you look at it sort of thematically, there's a couple realms you can look at. One is there's international development. They're covering things like food security, and they're looking at disaster risk reduction. These things are all certainly critically important within the realm of adaptation. I mean, just 
the realm of adaptation science in agriculture alone is is actually pretty well developed, even to, even here in the United States. There's another sort of track that you see, or you um, see both in the work of the center, but also at this conference, this Global Adaptation Summit, on infrastructure and finance, right? So as we move in sort of out of the realm of planning for adaptation, now, you know, um, I'd say overseas, 20 years worth of work on planning, and in the United States, maybe a decade or a little less than a decade planning, and we begin to move into implementation of adaptation interventions. Now we have to figure out how to resource and finance it and pay for it and the like. So you see this very sort of strong material orientation to infrastructure and to finance. There's some, you know, youth engagement that, uh, you know, some levels pandering, some level is true mobilization. If I sound skeptical on the youth side, it's because, you know, it's one thing to advance issue awareness and mobilize people, but then you need them to, I think, move a certain step. You know, what's the next step? How do you utilize that mobilization to affect real change? And I think a lot of what you see is, is not necessarily a certain consistency in the rhetoric. And, you know, it's easy to kind of identify the problems, but the real challenge with adaptation is how do you identify the solutions? So a lot of what you see in the youth side of things is certainly important. And I don't want to discount that, but it, it's not really, I think, translating. And, and for instance, one way, though, that I think they have been successful in translating it is they have been keen to think about higher education and the education of adaptation and resilience. And I think that's actually probably one of the most uh, profound takeaways from the conference and from their work. There are a couple of big news items that came out of the conference. The big one was that, of course, uh, Secretary Kerry, a special envoy for foreign climate policy, gave a speech as well as uh, Chinese Deputy Prime Minister uh, Heng Xiao. I, I hope I'm saying that correctly. And, you know, it's really important to have uh, multilateral conversations and hear from world leaders. There was also something called the 100 Cities Adapt Now, uh, or 1,000 Cities Adapt Now. I think it's called 1,000 Can. And this is a sort of interesting initiative from cities and mayors, World Resources Institute, UN Habitat, the Global Center, and what's sort of left over of the Rockefeller 100 Cities Network that's based now in Singapore. It's called Resilient Cities Network. They got together and, you know, had a big push at the conference. And, you know, on some level, it's, it's, there's a couple of things that are coming out of that. One is we just need more federal coordination and need more money to cities, right? Respect the autonomy of cities, but also give us a lot more money. There was sort of weird things in there like floating urban development. And, you know, it's hard to take seriously how universal or generalizable that is. It felt more experimental. But really what they're doing is trying to build out a network. And again, to what end is this network uh, useful? And I, I somewhat I feel like we run into a wall. We've got a lot of networks. I think probably one of the most effective networks, even for resilience and adaptation, is C40. You know, how many more resilience and adaptation networks do we really need? I don't know. So I'm not quite sure where that's going to go. But I think, you know, the real big story, at least for us here in the United States, is what did Kerry have to say? And really, one... Uh, by the way, I just want to note, he did make distinctions between resilience and adaptation. So clearly there's a level of articulation and expertise that's resident in his staff and his own thinking, which I think is quite important. But I mean, the big story on his end is really the mobilization of finance and the America's uh, outstanding uh, commitments, particularly under the Paris Accord, to make contributions to the global environmental facility. Um, there's a slew of funds, the Green Climate Fund. There's actually an adaptation fund, believe it or not, that dates back to 2001. In the Kyoto Accord, relatively modest success in these funds. They are underfunded and the demand is huge. And they're not, there's some ambiguous, I think, uh, results. But nonetheless, I think having American leadership and at least putting our money where our mouth is important, I think, more in diplomatic terms than it is substantively that we're, you know, putting money out to work in the field of adaptation at this point. Another component of his speech was talking about the mobilization of climate data and developing climate data infrastructure, promoting R&D. These are all good things. These things are already happening in some way. I think it just shows a certain necessary scope of understanding that and figuring out where the United States uh, fits in uh, as where we are now um, a step behind. So I think overall, the, the Climate Adaptation Summit, I think, was um, a success on some level. Some of it's just networking for networking's sake. Some of it is a little bit of the Dutch marketing effort. But I think it's important in a broader engagement of different communities doing different things. Issue awareness, getting the word out can't hurt. Uh, it's worth 
just one final thing is that, you know, what is the sort of global gathering? It's a conference called Adaptation Futures. That is the benchmark, I think, for the global adaptation community still. I don't think this summit is going to change that. This was more political than anything, but hey, you know, every step counts. Great breakdown. And uh, I don't know if maybe you could elaborate a bit more. You, you said that they acknowledged the issue of adaptation and resilience. I mean, w- was there a real description of those are two different concepts? I mean, how, what did they he really talk about? You said maybe some staffers got that in there, but what, what were they really chatting about with that? What I read is a, an articulation that there are policies practices and underlying modes of analysis, as well as just distinctions conceptually between resilience and adaptation. So if you actually go back and you read the script of his text or the text rather uh, of his speech, you'll see that, uh, you know, one of the challenges I think we've had in previous years, people use these words interchangeably and you and um, your audience knows that there are um, very, very important distinctions between different types of resilience, adaptation, maladaptation, you know, all the language matters, right? And so to see Carry being precise on some level about the language, I think really resonates with me personally in terms of the level of expertise that's committed to this American effort. So maybe the timing was good there that the week started off with the adaptation summit and then we got the big Biden announcement. And I think there was some chatter of just, you know, what maybe some expectations weren't met with adaptations. What's the climate gossip right now? You know, there's a lot of announcements, a lot of, you know, names that a lot of us are familiar with that are joining the administration. But let's, you know, let's start off with Gina McCarthy. You know, what's her official position title? What's it called? Good question. I think she's special advisor to the president, maybe uh, administrator, I believe would be her formal title of the domestic uh, climate policy office within the White House. I, I'm sure I've got a word uh, off uh, somewhere along the way, but I believe she is formally an administrator in addition to her special advisor role. And if people aren't familiar, Gina McCarthy was the head of EPA during the, the last of the Obama years, and she just was the head of NRDC, just as some context there. So what's going on there in her office and some of the people that she's bringing in? Well, I don't think we have a clear sense of her staff yet. Uh, we have a, a you know a well-respected deputy in place whose expertise is in climate mitigation, energy finance, energy policy. But I don't think we really have a clear um, understanding of uh, who's really on staff. And frankly, it just got launched, so I think it's going to take. Uh, it could very well take many months um, to find the right people um, to lead the right positions. You know, I got to know Gina a little bit, and uh, she came to Harvard, I think, about the same time that I did. And, you know, I was teaching Harvard and MIT's core adaptation resilience curriculum, and, and I got to spend some time with her. And, you know, I just, one, just a wonderful person, a true leader, a no-nonsense human being, uh, always boiled it down uh, in a field of academics, boiled it down to what's most important. And I think what I respected most about her, I mean, she comes from a generation of, you know, uh, environmental conservation. And it's a different uh, set of, um, you know, it's a different intellectual foundation than where we are today in many ways. But through the her cumulative experience and leadership, uh, you know, I think she's been quite successful for a lot of different reasons. But one of the things I think that I, the sort of takeaway I always had was that, you know, she was really just hungry to learn. And it was a constant process of just accumulating and learning things. And I, and that's what you're going to have to have. Because I think that the totality of what needs to be done is require a lot more uh, listening than talking sometimes. And I, I think that's something I personally admire in a leader. So I have my own experience in the federal government, and I dealt a lot with the the office, the Council of Environmental Quality. And, you know, people, if you don't understand how sort of government works, sometimes depending on how people prioritize CEQ's role, how does this all fit in there and what, you know, uh, Gina McCarthy's doing with her new climate role? Yeah, that's a really outstanding question. Things can really succeed in CEQ or they can go there to die. And in many ways, it's dependent on um, personalities, leadership, access to the president. Um, there's a lot of questions there. And the relationship between CEQ and uh, Kerry's office and Administrator McCarthy's office will be, I think, uh, uh, to be determined. You know, what I'm hearing from those from, uh, the, the, you know, the, the part, the respective parties here is that resilience is sort of been understood or projected to be bad politics, right? It's local. Uh, it's about local conflicts. It really lacks in empiricism and measurement. And I don't think that's necessarily correct, certainly within the public health metrics of community resilience or the engineering uh, resilience is extremely well are, uh, developed analytically. 
and empirically, um, but I could understand, you know, the legacy, particularly the Rockefeller 100, of this kind of rhetorical impetus behind resilience that isn't particularly suited for the kind of benchmarking that you need for for government uh, stewardship over large amounts of resources and policies and programs. It's just not consistent or necessarily mature enough to be so widely utilized. I think when they look at this, and I think some within the administration, the transition and now the administration have looked at resilience and they've questioned the extent to which, you know, it represents a framework uh, on equal terms, certainly not on equal terms with the challenge of climate mitigation. But I think it's been, you know, what I'm sort of hearing along the way is that resilience and adaptation and, and mostly resilience has been, you know, relegated in a way. It's bad politics. And I don't disagree. I think resilience at this point is a very difficult politics. These are really difficult conversations to have. There's no easy political win. And if you think about, you know, what is the constituency or what are, are the constituencies that have the greatest access to the president and shaping some of this policy externally? Certainly the climate justice communities have been laser focused on uh, a just uh, energy transition, right? And they just don't necessarily have the, uh, the institutional capacity in-house or the experience, unlike a lot of environmental justice uh, advocates, to really take on resilience adaptation. They've just been, and in, to their credit, stay on task, stay uh, focused on the energy transition. But really, they, there just hasn't been a lot of experience within the climate justice realm within resilience adaptation. It's not universal. There's a lot of groups that I think are slowly getting there. They're building their expertise. They're building their platforms. But I think from the environmental justice community, which is distinct in both historical and organizational terms, they've been engaged with resilience and adaptation for a long time, uh, often just out of necessity, but often in a post-disaster recovery context. So I think it's going to take a while for that external political voice about just uh, environmental justice and to, to reach into the White House to really, I think, push resilience and adaptation further. And, you know, what I'm hearing is that resilience very well may be relegated to CEQ and not necessarily find a strong home in Gina's office. I don't necessarily know if that's true or not, but I think if that's the case, then it, it perhaps could be very much a missed opportunity because we have a lot of uh, interagency work that needs to happen in terms of a wide spectrum of potential policies associated with resilience and adaptation across the federal government. So we'll see. Um, it's still early. It may take a lot of time to play out, but that's the kind of scuttlebutt that I'm hearing now. I'm having flashbacks of when I walked over to CEQ and we had these meetings up there and you did sort of sense who's showing up to those meetings, what sort of who's relevant and such. And it, the dynamics play out really interestingly, you know, between the White House and some of the, the, the various offices that work for them. A lot of these groups have been standing back. It's four years of them sort of being ignored by the White House. But let's talk about the climate power landscape in D.C. at the moment. What's going on? Who are they and what's happening out there? Yeah, it's really interesting. Again, you know. Energy, uh, climate mitigation and energy folks, they've got just generations of expertise and uh, and they've vetted policies um, thoroughly for many, many years. Of course, a lot of work to be done, but a lot of work has been done. Resilience and adaptation doesn't have the same level of maturity uh, within its own sort of power base or social network. So I think there's a couple of groups out there uh, or constituencies that one should sort of be generally aware of. The one, uh, there's a recent group of people called under the title Resilience 21. It's a number of chief resilience officers from around the United States, kind of post-Rockefeller legacy, really bringing the sort of heart and soul of thinking about resilience, um, particularly through the lens of cities, maybe not necessarily states, but certainly the role that cities play, as well as incorporating some, you know, substantive environmental justice things. There's some interesting conflict there, and we'll talk about this relating to a carbon price. But, you know, in many ways, it doesn't have the same um, analytical discipline or policy sort of discipline in a way. It's it's a kind of loose set of ideas, and, and maybe that's fine. Sometimes just fast and raw ideas and propagating those are a good way to instigate people. So it's an interesting coalition, but it's mostly from the lens of, 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 of cities. There's another group called ACRE. And this is associated with the Stimson Center, among others. And this really is an emerging, I would say, sort of center of power. I, I tend to see that 
they seem to be gaining uh, a little bit more influence in Washington. They're bringing in industry, big business, engineering groups, you know, they're bringing in, uh, uh, you know, industry. And, you know, some people may look at this and say, oh, well, this is just disaster capitalism, taking advantage of the opportunity for more business, more money and more, you know, as capital moves out of a fossil fuel intensive sectors and into more uh, climate resilient, if you will, low carbon sectors, you know, industry is going to follow. And, and that's, you know, that's a good thing, but there's also kind of exploitive elements. I tend to think that what's happening here is actually not along those lines. And I'm usually the first person to sort of be skeptical in these terms. I think what Acre is doing uh, is important because it's bringing that level of empiricism and analytical expertise and really, frankly, what we need to do to invest in R&D in this country, the research and development uh, to advance the technology, whether it's the measurement technology associated with uh, you know projecting or understanding where climate impacts are going or how we underwrite that and internalize that within, you know, Everything from finance to environmental justice screens, uh, measuring contextual vulnerability uh, for highly vulnerable uh, communities across the board. There's a lot that we can do, I think, in terms of uh, development of intellectual property and underlying modes of analysis that will resonate in terms of what we need to do to benchmark progress. So I th- I'm feeling very positive, and I think that they're really getting a foothold politically uh, in Washington in this regard. You have some Silicon Valley techies, and, you know, I... You know, conflict of interest here. I'm, I'm an advisor and investor in, in um, Jupiter Intelligence, among uh, other technology firms. So I, I, I'm sort of biased in my projection here. But, you know, I think that they, they are in observation mode, as is tech, you know, tech in Silicon Valley in the world of climate have, I think, wanted to be partners and I think are looking for, you know, how can we engage public and private partnerships associated with data and technology? Um, we're in a very different place than we were four years ago. And we can come back to this in terms of just data and, and the ambition, um, particularly what we saw in the executive order. So I would say kind of the technology side of the equation is a little bit just wait and see, build consensus and uh, move accordingly. Banks, uh, and I'm not necessarily speaking for Jupiter or any other firms I'm associated with. This is just what I read as the kind of broader landscape, particularly among the big tech firms. Banks are really on the sidelines. I mean, they're in shell shock. They're putting out fires associated with COVID and the broader stresses in the, uh, you know, in the community. I have been getting very positive responses on there's an outstanding rule for the Co- um, Community Reinvestment Act that would allow banks to get what we call CRA credit for making resilience and adaptation uh, investments. It was something I had pushed at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco in terms of policy and research. And I'm, I'm starting to get some feedback that banks really think that they have a um, there, there's a role for them to make uh, investments in communities, particularly low moderate income communities um, that can really advance, you know, simple things like retrofits of homes to help uh, reduce uh, potential wind loads uh, or damages rather from uh, increasing tropical cyclones. So there's, there's little things that you can do that really add up to advance, uh, I think, people's lives. So banks, they're putting out fires, not terribly focused, but, you know, little things like Community Reinvestment Act, I think they're keeping an eye on. You see people in the House of Representatives, the House Select Committee, I think they're trying to figure out how they can gain influence over the administration. Um, clearly, they've been doing really good work in terms of scoping problems and identifying who's doing what and where the expertise is. And I think they're going to probably come forward much sooner than later with their own agenda associated with resilience and adaptation. Again, very early on. When you look at the, another constituency in Washington, it would be people who had been in the Obama administration who worked on resilience and adaptation. I think most of them are sort of see the writing on the wall in terms of the early signals about from the transition uh, folks as well as now, now people in the administration that, you know, the priority here appears to be climate mitigation for now, at least until the next hurricane season comes around. Uh, and it may be more politically feasible to make these investments. I, I hope that's not the case. But I think many of them are not particularly eager to jump back into government and are really looking to a, a newer group of experts to arise and, and enter into the ranks of government. So surprising to me that some of the expertise that was developed during the Obama administration is not really finding its way into the hierarchy of the climate administration. Now, a good example of this is uh, Kevin Bush, who was in uh, HUD, the White House, back at HUD, led a lot of uh, really one of the top people in the federal government thinking about resilience and adaptation, a lot of expertise. Uh, he went on to become the chief resilience officer of Washington, D.C., did great work, great person, strong leader. Now he's back at HUD as a, I think, deputy assistant secretary at HUD, and he's doing, I think, grants. Now he may be able to accomplish an awful lot in that position in terms of steering money and resilience dollars and investment dollars into a a wide portfolio of things. And I, I hope that's the case. But he's also the kind of person that I look to 
who has the resident expertise, particularly in the White House, who I would have thought personally would have been elevated to a, you know, a deputy position for adaptation, frankly, within the domestic uh, policy office. So I think, you know, it's again, very early to know. Is that an underutilization of talent and leadership? Maybe, maybe not. But it is a, a bit of an example of, you know, taking someone who is really one of an insider who has a lot of experience in resilience adaptation and doesn't seem to have be placed in the right spot. Now, he may disagree. Uh, everybody may disagree. I would just have looked at him among a few other people and said, you know, these are the kind of people we need at a very high level in this domestic climate office if we're going to have uh, real work. So that's the kind of landscape of people and actors. I think at least within the Beltway and within Washington, they're sort of vying for influence over this uh, emerging uh, resilience and adaptation landscape. What about some big things on the horizon to consider? You, you'd mentioned a carbon tax. What, what, what do you mean? Well, that's really interesting. I think this may be one of the biggest rubs in terms of potential conflicts uh, between, particularly re- between climate mitigation folks, the climate adaptation folks, and the climate environmental justice people. And in fact, I think this is a division within the climate resilience adaptation crowd to do what needs to be done. And you know, need is a qualifiable term, but you know, some basic investments uh, in in terms of adaptation, post-disaster recovery, hazard mitigation, things that we have a pretty good idea of the low-hanging fruit at this point are just grossly under-resourced financially. And by the way, there's, there's a lot of opportunity here in a post-COVID world and in a climate world to, you know, two birds with one stone. So I don't want to think, sit, contextualize these challenges in sort of isolation. There's a lot of co-benefits, if you will. But one of the big things that I think comes up that's a bit divisive is the idea of carbon tax. And you have the Climate Leadership Council, among others, that have, you know, make a very compelling argument for a carbon tax with dividends, right? And so the critique of that among some environmental justice and climate justice folks is that, you know, if we have a carbon tax, it will be disproportionately borne, the cost will be disproportionately borne by uh, low to moderate income, particularly, you know, impoverished and historically marginalized communities. The counter argument is that if you pay a dividend, right, you pay some measure of dividend weighted in favor of those communities, that they will indeed, uh, in the aggregate, they may, yes, pay some measure of carbon tax, as we all will, but they will actually come out, I can't say they're making money, but from their economic position, they will have a dividend that is a higher number than the underlying imputed cost of the tax that they would be paying, right? There is some experience around this around the world that suggests that this actually can be done. It's not a regressive tax. There's a number of people within the resilience and adaptation world that actually really want a carbon tax um, because they see it as a means to utilize that flow of tax money to help pay for resilience and adaptation. In fact, the Resilience 21 proposal that you saw did push for that. And I think it's somewhat controversial and certainly not settled. I think there's a huge challenge ahead if we're going to go the carbon tax route with dividends that that, you know, constituency, which is, by the way, pretty bipartisan, they really need to reach out and engage the environmental justice, the climate justice community, and really have a dialogue about what that dividend looks like. How would you design it and, and really ensure that people are disproportionately not being uh, further marginalized, at least in economic terms. But that, from a resilience adaptation point of view, is a, a potentially extremely strong aspect uh, potential for revenue. So it's a big conflict that's going to set up. And, and frankly, you know, my own opinion is that I think that I, ha- I do have faith in the dividend. I do have faith that we can design a dividend that uh, is, in fact, not regressive and is uh, advancing us to greater discipline in our economy. Cap and trade is not going to work. It really has to be a carbon tax uh, for my uh, humble and lay opinion. I'm not an expert in this. I see both sides, and I think it's something that needs to be engaged uh, around further. Well, let's just start off there and go from there when it comes to policy. Okay, let's just jump right in. I watched part of it in President Biden. You know, he signed his his executive order, and I think it's executive order on tackling the climate crisis at home and abroad. All right, now let's dig into that. What did you see? Well, it's a big rollout. It certainly feels like a lot of momentum for a lot of people. Yeah, I went back and just looked through the text. Resilience appears uh, 13 times, adaptation appears twice. In its usage, there is some distinctions, as we saw with Kerry, between resilience and adaptation. So good start there. You know, right? Uh, basic language. I think in general, let's talk about where resilience appears. Just going back to Secretary Kerry's, and I don't know if he holds the title of Administrator Kerry or Secretary Kerry. I assume Secretary Kerry is the title he holds. But Secretary Kerry, in his uh, Global Adaptation Summit comments, you know, really brought up climate finance and finance not as a mechanism to, uh, not exclusively for clean energy transition, but really 
to invest in resilience adaptation. That was part of it. That was part of the executive order, really following up on these international commitments, but also integrating that within USAID, which, by the way, during the Obama administration, they had made um, a fair amount of headway in doing that work. And in fact, globally, you know, the origins of resilience adaptation have been in international development uh, and still resonate there pretty strongly today in terms of experience. Now, again, there's a lot of maladaptive aspects of resilience in international development, and it's been quite controversial. So it's not fully vetted or tested or validated, but I think the intent is there to learn from that international experience. But the bottom line from a climate finance point of view is there's just a lot of multilateral work that needs to happen, particularly within the realm of financial regulation, uh, disclosure, uh, things like stress testing, scenario planning, you know, really domesticating our internet, uh, domesticating our banking regulation and global experience within the American vernacular. Our economy is quite diverse. It's, it's really unlike any other in the world. So how are we going to take all of this financial financial regulation and oversight, which, by the way, represents types and forms of adaptation. And how are we going to domesticate that? So there's a real clear impetus there. And it seems that Kerry and his team is pushing that forward. Digging through it, I saw that there's going to be a national climate task force. And again, my own experience that there was some climate task forces back in the you know early Obama days. And sometimes I saw those as just these committees, these task forces that were kind of put out there to pasture and hopefully they would accomplish something, but they weren't quite sure what to do with it coming back. Give us some background on this task force. What's the language like and what's your, your sense of is it going to accomplish much? Well, you know, it's hard to know. I, I hear what you're saying in terms of the interagency work. It's worth noting that in the executive order, you know, they talk about increased resilience to climate change impacts. Well, again, that one vague, but two, you know, increasing resilience from a technical point of view is not necessarily always what you want to do. Sometimes you need to fully adapt. But nonetheless, without getting too technical, the intent is there. I respect the intent, as we should all. The question is from, you know, uh, who's in the National Climate Task Force? Well, it's the cabinet, science advisor, economic, you know, national security folks. It's a huge umbrella of people. And I really wonder, you know, maybe this is a little bit where your skepticism is, but there's like 20 or 30 people on there representing a huge, uh, you know, diversity of sectors and policy and regulatory domains. You know, like how big does this thing really need to be? Who's going to be leading it? You know, what's the charge? And, you know, obviously they will break into work groups and task groups and subtask groups and they will, you know, break it down in digestible pieces. We just don't have any insight at this point of what those digestible pieces are. Certainly, I think it's admirable that they're all coming together in this class force. But to what extent is the task force working or operating in parallel to the domestic policy office, you know, it's hard to know. I've written about this and published about this, but if you go back to the Obama administration, you know, there was interagency inter- inter- adaptation task force that was sort of led by NOAA and some of the science folks. You know, it was very scientific. It wasn't so policy sharp, if you will. Meandered in somewhat unsuccessful ways, successful in some ways and unsuccessful in others. Certainly had its influence in the White House Climate Action Plan. But ultimately, it was replaced in centralized within the National Security Council. And I think in many ways, that was a really smart move. Now, there's a little bit of a downside in, in putting resilience within the domain of national security or do, uh, domestic homeland security. But I think from an organizational management point of view, it's quite sharp uh, and was uh, indeed successful. So National Climate Task Force, still super vague, a lot of people in it, hard to know how they're, uh, what those digestible pieces uh, really are at this stage. Okay, and so furthering my cynicism there, there's the, an, another piece called climate action plans, and I'm all for developing plans. You should just not go out there. But again, going back to the Obama years, I was representing the Department of Interior at some pretty high level meetings. And it, again, it, the, I don't think the political appointees really appreciated how to engage with these agencies on what it means to develop plans. And there's a lot of going through the motions. You, I mean, your own experience with what happened in the Obama years and how can we do things differently with the, this call for climate action plans? Listen, so there's climate action plans. Agencies have 120 days to work on resilience of operations and facilities. This is basically where we were with sustainability or an addendum to sustainability reporting in the Obama years, uh, SIPs and things like that. But there were some real problems there. So in many ways, it's a little bit of flashback to where we were. Not necessarily the level of detail that I think we need, but so there's some good and bad. So the, the, the bad and the problem here is that, you know, 
this has been done before, but it really lacked the specificity and guidance. And because of that, and this is a problem, by the way, for states, and I'm not going to say what states, but states that are really advancing uh, the public administration of climate resilience and adaptation struggle with this too. But I think there's actually been enough learning and knowledge about how to do this well that's not re well represented, uh, at least on its face in the executive order. But here's the problem. Everybody's going to approach and define resilience in their own different way. And in fact, this was the problem during the Obama administration. People literally just used different definitions of resilience. They understood it in very different ways. Some people use what we call Presidential Directive 21, PPD 21, which is a kind of not particularly well articulated scientific definition of resilience. Some people used old school prior National Academies definition. It's just all over the place. People didn't understand resilience, so they therefore disclosure, reporting, assessment was all over the place. Now, in this executive order, they do the right thing. They say that the federal sustainability officer, uh, in coordination with OMB, really has to uh, coordinate for consistency. So it's really going to be on OMB, which I do believe is the right entity here, to really drive home that consistency. But, you know, the way I would have done this is OMB proceeds to define these things, provide a lot more scope, and then kick it to them and give them 120 days, if not a lot longer, because I think um, I think it's going to take uh, a fair amount of time to do this. So, you know, too much, too quick, hard to know. But I, it's really you have to have that guidance, because if you just let people loose, um, you're going to be running in circles uh, basically uh, to where we were now. Again, so another challenge here with this is that it's focus on internal operations and facilities. This is not thinking about the resilience and adaptive capacity of your external mission. So that's quite distinct. So when you're it's not like you're asking these agencies and departments to really think about how they are going to adapt their mission, their work. No, it's just operations, just facilities. There is something new in this executive order that um, it does represent some measure of novelty, and that's increasing supply chain resilience. Uh, and certainly that uh, resonates in you know PPD and personal protective gear and things like that in the COVID era where we've, we've had an extremely weak and challenging supply chain. So actually imposing that will, again, yield some COVID benefits in terms of supply chain resilience. And it is something new, but I don't think we've really pushed the mark uh, too terribly far. And, and frankly, OMB has a ton of work to do if they're going to draw, you know, apples to apples here and, and try to build some cross-departmental, cross-agency learning and some measure of maturity. Otherwise, we're back to where we were four years ago. Boy, that is a step back in the sense if it's more focused internally, because when I was there, it, there was a lot of planning that was focused externally. There was a lot of ambitious stuff. They weren't doing that much, but at least the plans were focused more ex externally to the missions that they were doing, you know, especially engaging with the public. So, hey, but on a positive note, I've just been I'm having flashbacks of my federal years, but there's this civilian climate core. What's that about? Yeah, I, you know, again, super critical community resilience is among the job categories in the civilian climate corps, which I really applaud. I think the real challenge for them is, well, training these people in community resilience. Uh, community resilience is a broad and uh, diverse and, and frankly, relatively mature field of study and analysis and policy and practice. You know, I really applaud that that is a component of people committing themselves to community service and civic service. But, it, you know, if they're going to do this, I think it's incumbent upon them to really think about the education component of here and leadership training associated with this. If it's just propagating more sort of we're all going to be resilient sort of rhetoric, which is predominated in, in many aspects um, without really the, you know, asking the right questions and raising very tough questions about the course forward in terms of justness, effectiveness, efficiency, and the like, in terms of a variety of different options we have for adaptation and, and resilience, and how do we measure that in terms of impact on people and communities and the environment? What are the trade-offs? You know, if we're not helping people understand trade-offs and communicate to communities and engage with communities in the right way. Uh, we're just running in circles. So that's the challenge. And, and I hope that this becomes really a platform for not only just edu not only educating civilian climate corps, but providing an education platform that will resonate across the agencies. Cause a lot of this is investing in the education of, uh, of our civil service, right? People need to understand not only the science of climate change, but the, the applied science of adaptation science itself. There's a lot of training and a lot of, I think, let's say standardization of curricula that needs to happen here um, to get the most out of these initiatives. But I, I, it's a very strong first step. Yeah, it remains to be seen that w what their core duties will be. But I just hope that th they become ambassadors for climate change, ambassadors for climate resilience. And so they're out there in communities and there's a lot of positives just coming from that aspect of what they're doing. So uh, that's what I think there's something encouraging about that. I know this is a issue uh, dear to your heart. And let's talk about climate data in regards to the executive order. Yeah. So 
you know, in there, it's a very ambitious idea that um, we're going to promote integration of climate data and amplify our forecasting capacity to support planning. First of all, forecasting, extremely tenuous in terms of integration and scaling uh, climate data and, and application across so many different sectors of our economy and components of our society. So it's it's a huge ambition. In many ways, this is where we were in 2015 with the Climate Data Initiative with Microsoft, Google, Intel, and others. It was really at that time, it was a data integration challenge to provide you know greater measures of public transparency. But in four years, the landscape and the technology landscape has significantly changed. Those firms, among others, have their own proprietary ambitions. It has been you know internalized within Wall Street and, and the global financial order. This, this data, this information has real value. And we're running into a public policy conflict where you know there's proprietary intellectual property, which we need to do to promote, you know, our, and we need R&D and we need investment in that. And that's going to drive uh, adaptation resilience uh, in one direction, not say the right direction, but in one direction. And then we have this conflicting policy agenda with having transparency so that people can make uh, informed decisions, right? And having their own opportunity to make decisions about their own, let's say, financial or household destiny. You know, so that's one part of it. So the landscape has totally changed just in terms of the technology itself. And also, you know, if it's not, so the way they frame it is about planning. Well, guess what? There's the haves and have nots in the United States. There's those jurisdictions and local and state local governments that have the resources that have been doing climate resilience adaptation work. And they're done with planning. They've already gone through their vulnerability assessments. They are now at a level, and I can't say they're totally done with planning, but let me just say that they've moved from planning into stage and phases of implementation, right? And, you know, all of this data landscape, et cetera, et cetera, um, it's been for hire. It's been commercialized by some extent. And those jurisdictions, which are really just very large cities, who have the institutional capacity, they've taken advantage of this already. They're pushing forward. They don't need help with planning. They need help with implementation. And that's a much more complicated challenge. And so, you know, if there's a fiction here or kind of story that we could tell that greater uh, transparency associated with this data and information is going to help smaller jurisdictions, there's over 4,000 municipal jurisdictions in the United States. And I would venture to say that only about two or 300 have probably taken climate change you know, seriously uh, in climate mitigation, and maybe only a hundred have done real substantive work in terms of uh, resilience and adaptation. Now, for the 3,000 and whatever, you know, entities that have not done, you know, any work or very little work at all, you know, is an integrated mapping data platform going to um, do much for them? It's absolutely not. I mean, these vulnerability assessments, these kind of first order things that you need to do to set up and create priorities. One, science isn't going to have the judgment. It, you know, science is not a substitute for the judgment and political judgment it takes about what we're going to protect and what we're going to let go between investment and disinvestment. We understand that. And, you know, the, the, there's a lot of nuance in terms of local uh, geography, environmental eco and ecosystem performance. I mean, there's just so much that would not necessarily be captured in these things. So I kind of feel like we are back where we were. Data integration is a thing, but like we need to actually take this a step further and think about a m and really understand where the country is. In terms of state and local government, particularly county and municipal government, you know, where are they and what do they really need? I don't see that necessarily represented here. Certainly the U.S. Climate Resilience Toolkit has really been a quite a valuable resource. It's a public consumption resource. It's not necessarily centrally oriented to advancing state and local government uh, activity, which is the scale of much of the investment um, that will come. You know, approximately 80% of the investment infrastructure in the United States comes from, from local governments. I spent the, some time recently with some federal leadership and climate data leaders. And I think one thing that they're really hungry for is how do they engage the public and private sector? Where do they come? You know, how do they, how do they interact? There's not clear to them or to me what that mechanism of interaction is. But, you know, the government chugs along. They have their data, their satellites. They know where it can be applied. But, you know, scientific uncertainty and the uncertainty or thresholds of risk that households, people, small businesses, big businesses, you know, there's a not necessarily well aligned and there's a translational. It's a it's a language. It's a not just a mathematical language or a scientific one, but it's one of translation of how this data can inform decision making. So it's extremely complex, but I think what we see is a real desire to have greater convergence in the public and private sectors. And we need to do that in the context of where governments are with the recognition that this data, in no matter how transparent and clear and accessible it is to whatever user design you have, it's not a substitution for the lack of institutional capacity at state and local governments. And that's where we need to focus our energy on.
Okay, so you've covered a lot of ground. What's your overall take on this executive order? And, you know, what, how should people kind of read between the lines? This, you know, the, even the timing of this and what's going to be set in motion over the next four years. I mean, what's your overall take? Um, obviously I have a self-interest in seeing a more concrete strategy, uh, leading to something like a national adaptation plan or national adaptation strategy from which these things can be properly contextualized. I mean, we, we haven't quite yet seen where the personnel are going to fit. And, it, you know, we've talked about that and there's some, that's a real outstanding question. I understand it's early. It's going to take time, but the rules that we set today are the rules that we're going to play by in the future. And I think that a lot of this resilience and adaptation work is actually quite bipartisan. You know, look at where the vulnerability or the, at least the environmental exposure is. A lot of red states, uh, they need the money. Congress for many years has been shifting away from post-disaster recovery expenditures in favor of, let's say, hazard mitigation or pre-disaster expenditures. You know, we think we have the Storm Act recently which is really key. So I think, you know, what I want to see going forward is certainly this, there's a lot of momentum here. It's somewhat diffuse, but I think we need a much more coordinated, centralized vision for where we want to go with resilience adaptation. And let me just say one of the good things that we have seen in policy is the incorporation or what we anticipate to be the incorporation of climate change into our national defense strategy and to national security analysis. There's a woman that was hired as senior director for resilience and response at the National Security Council, Caitlin uh, Durkovich, I think it is. Very strong background in cyber and infrastructure, and that's really critical. But I think we need to, you know, move resilience or diversify our understanding of resilience outside of the engineering resilience into community resilience and as well as into climate adaptation more formally. So strong person and a very important role. By the way, cyber attacks and the interaction between our cyber vulnerability and climate change is a real thing. A lot of people don't know that when we've had in recent years hurricanes hitting, cyber attacks have happened in jurisdictions being hit by hurricanes and they've targeted you know natural disasters as a time and place to localize their attacks. So there is an interaction there between hybrid warfare, cyber attacks, engineering resilience, climate, and, and you know, we need people in that realm. But I think we, we need to really think and more broadly about the range of expertise and how we elevate that expertise. I'm not that person, but those people, these people are out there that can coordinate uh, with the domestic office as well as the foreign office. So listen, strong first start, don't want to jump the gun, a lot of work to be done, and the momentum is there, and the emotional intelligence uh, is there for all of us to, I think, think this through and be disciplined going forward with the momentum that we have. Well, sticking to this topic, maybe we get you back on in six months, nine months, whatever you think is a good time frame, and we're just, we check in, right? We check in and see what, you know, the status is. Yeah, there's a lot happening, right? And we're all a part of this one way or the other. And I just hope that we don't get to a point in time where, you know, the next hurricane season or fire season comes around and then all of a sudden it becomes a priority. I think, you know, let's use the momentum that we have today to understand that a lot of what you can do what resilience adaptation can do, and I mean the policies and practices of resilience adaptation can do for you in terms of not only bipartisan, uh, you know, resourcing from Congress, but also what it can do for environmental justice, right? I mean, a lot of these things are fundamentally about uh, thinking about extreme vulnerability, protecting people. This is the here and the now, right? We don't have any more time to waste. You know, energy transitions, they take time. They happen, frankly, over decades. Of course, they happen, you know, there's immediate policies that we work on now that set those path dependencies. But this is the here and now. So I'm hoping in the next uh, even weeks, we will see adaptation resilience elevated in a place that I think can shape policy going forward. Okay, Jesse, we were originally supposed to talk about maladaptation. I wanted sort of a clinic and what that issue is. I've sort of avoided it on the podcast, even though it's really important and something that you talk about. Maybe you could just... And I want to get you on relatively soon. Just we're going to do a whole episode around maladaptation. But really, what is it and, and why should we care about it? Well, maladaptation is when we're heading in the wrong direction. Now, there's some obviously measure of subjectivity here. Maladaptation and adaptation can actually happen in parallel. Some interventions, even as a matter of policy, can be adaptive for some people and maladaptive to others. And I think it's, you know, I think when you talk to people in, particularly in the federal government, just going back to our conversation about policy, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do is not promote adaptation in our society and our economy. What we're trying to do is prevent maladaptation. Right. What we're trying to do is we, we don't necessarily, you know, adaptation and resilience, these are processes, not outcomes. 
And what we're trying to do is steer our world in a certain direction that um, thinks about fairness, effectiveness, efficiency, thinks about the impact on the environment, on vulnerable communities and the like. We understand what maladaptation is. We understand the extent to which interventions can have negative implications and widely distributed negative implications or sometimes narrowly distributed implications and negative impacts. So again, it's really critically important. You can think of this as the kind of yin and yang. And as we go forward, yeah, superficially, we want to promote adaptation, but I think more realistically in an intellectual terms, we're just trying to prevent maladaptation. And I think a lot of what we do in the course of policy right now in my area of expertise in housing and mortgages is quite maladaptive, right? We're not pricing in climate risk. We're not evaluating the risk. We're setting up decisions today that are going to have um, quite negative consequences in the future. So it's a, it's a really important analytical frame and it helps us understand the conflicts and the trade-offs between different types of resilience and adaptation interventions because not all resilience is adaptive, right? There's many examples where some types of resilience can lead to maladaptation. So we just need to be super critical. And in fact, this is really at the heart of environmental and climate justice in many ways. And I think that it's uh, grossly misunderstood the extent to which the rhetoric of resilience has not been critically evaluated analytically as a means to make these trade-offs. So whenever you think about adaptation or whenever you think about resilience, you have to ask yourself to whom and under what circumstances may this be maladaptive? Okay. So there's just a, a a teaser and a longer conversation. Jesse, you know the routine. I'm back. I've actually added a question at the end here. What Twitter handle would you suggest people follow? Is there anyone you particularly like? Oh, that's a tough one. Oh, there's so many people out there that I, I try to follow or sometimes I don't follow. I just find that like there, there's, they, they bring some novelty and I le- always learn something from them. Man, this is a really tough question. Just give me one. I know you're going to give uh, me one. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm going through my Twitter thing right now. It just happens to be my own vanity and understanding and connecting with the world. You know, I, I think it's Eric Rostin at Bloomberg. I, I just, you should have him on as a guest. I think he, he does really interesting work and he just has a very lighthearted view of the world, but also quite seriously, a uh, serious one in terms of the quality of his own journalism. But that's someone I actually, and I, I've told this to him before. I, it's like one of these things where some of his, his tweets and his, you know, external communications are quite ridiculous, but there, there's a kind of humor and humility to the way he views the world that I think we need. We need more of that. We need hu- more humor and humility in our world. Okay. Well, my final question, which you know, is what guest would you recommend to come on? Do you want it to be him or is there an additional person? Yeah. Who would I want to come on right now? Yeah, there's so many people. Uh, I, you know, I, I think one person that would be really good is Ben Caldecott, who's a professor of sustainable finance at uh, Oxford University. And, and you know, he's been, played a really pivotal role in Europe uh, and in the UK in particular in thinking about finance and climate change. And, and he's playing an increasingly important role leading up to COP26. So, you know, increasingly the signals are clear. I mean, also, this is like my little worldview. So I, I, I t- tend to over attribute its importance, of course. But, you know, clearly paying for these things, resourcing these things, who bears the costs and uh, benefits of uh, uh, investments in climate adaptation and climate mitigation is, is really critical. And I think he would have some really interesting insight because he's been doing this a lot longer than most of us in the United States. Uh, and so I think having someone from the outside look at where they see the opportunity to maybe even learn from others' mistakes would be really insightful. Sounds like a good one. I'll follow up about maybe connecting. Jesse, as always, such a pleasure to have you on. And thanks for breaking down this very important time that we're going through. And um, we'll talk again soon. All right. Very good, man. Take care. Hey, Adapters. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jesse. Okay. As I mentioned in the introduction, I have a new recurring segment called Adapting to Climate Change with Alice Hill. As most of you know, Alice has been on the podcast before and we had some discussion behind the scenes that it would be great to get her on on a more recurring basis. I recorded this conversation originally on Simpatico. So if you want to see this as a streaming TV interview, check that out. The links are in my show notes. Okay. Let's check in with Judge Alice Hill. Hey Adapters, welcome back. Joining me is Judge Alice Hill. Alice is a David Rubenstein Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Alice's work at CFR focuses on the risks, consequences, and responses associated with climate change. Alice previously served as Special Assistant to President Obama and Senior Director for Resilience Policy on the National Security Council staff, 
where she led the development of national policy to build resilience to catastrophic risks. Welcome back, Alice. Thank you, Doug. What a pleasure. Well, we, we're doing these series. You've written some articles and we're bringing you on and we want to sort of dissect some of the things that you've said. And so you recently published a piece in The Hill entitled, What Will It Take for FEMA to Take Climate Change Seriously? I love that title. And what was it about? It was about the last four years we have seen in FEMA, but not just FEMA, really across the government a removal of the words climate change. And it's not so much the vocabulary that is of concern, but it's the consideration of climate risk that is so important that that must be front and center. And FEMA, despite its responsibilities for emergency response and reducing risk before a disaster, had systematically pretty much removed mention of climate change in its documents and really had sent a signal, in my opinion, to communities that perhaps they didn't need to worry about climate change. And we instead need to send a very strong signal that climate change is upending their communities and will continue to upend their communities with the type of risks it brings. Normally, a lot of these federal agencies have even legislative mandates that they're supposed to cover. So in no way, when you think about new risk and new threats that legally they're not even responsible to address these, that's, that's not an avenue that I guess someone could pursue saying, why aren't you even mentioning climate change? No. Well, we do have some certain mandated reports, so uh, but not from FEMA in this instance. We have the National Climate Assessment, which Congress mandated, and every four or so years, the government's supposed to produce an assessment of what climate risk looks like. FEMA has its own strategy under President Trump. It did not, that strategy did not really discuss climate change. And then every year there is a mandated report for a national preparedness report describing the great risks to the nation, as well as the readiness of the nation to address those risks. And in the latest version, FEMA did not mention essentially climate change in that report. And that omission speaks volumes uh, and, and really puts communities at risk if they're not thinking about climate change on their own. And if the federal government's not encouraging them to do that, you can imagine a town that has a part-time mayor, no planning staff, no one to help it. How are they possibly going to be figuring out what climate change means for them? I really loved how you structured that article. You know, it played out a nice, there was a nice narrative. And one of the stories that you were telling is the FEMA administrator, Pete Gaynor, was appearing before Congress. And at, up to a certain point, he wasn't talking about climate change or even admitting to it. But then at this one, he did. And it was sort of this reluctant acknowledgement. Could you could give a little bit more context to all that? Well, I think he was just being pushed that uh, climate change does play a role. And, you know, it's a little uncomfortable. You think these Folks are dancing around an issue. And finally, he begrudgingly acknowledged that climate was a risk. But as I recall, he also said, well, that report, that national preparedness report, that that that's for big threats, but we didn't need to mention it. And that was unfortunate. Well, and that's also, like you just mentioned, it's sending a signal, you know, up and down the chain, you know, state people's, you know, local government to the disaster responders that, well, that doesn't really matter. And he's, he, he's sort of setting the stage to make it difficult even in the years ahead, isn't he? I believe so. I think that's a mistake. And the, the unfortunate thing is climate risk will unfold over decades. But when we make building choices, when we make about where we build, how we build, we're planning to stay there for decades. So we need to make sure that those decisions are wise in the face of what we think conditions will be. It was safe for thousands of years to assume that the climate was relatively stable, that we would have the one in 1,000 year flood. But the one in 1,000 year flood is becoming the one in 500 year flood and it will become the one in 100. It's probably an unfortunate phrasing, but it's all about probabilities. And the probability of a big flood is increasing. We need to reflect that, that growing risk in our planning decisions so that we don't put people in places that are going to be threatened or severely impacted by events that are projected to occur over the life of the building or the life of the development. I'm going to ask a question from the community room here from Ken again. It's, we've had some guests in the know suggest that climate change is on the whole a bipartisan issue. Do you feel there is true bipartisan support for the kinds of policy changes 
that are necessary to move us in the right direction. Well, I think it's a bipartisan issue for the American public. Over 70% of Americans think climate change is a, a concern. So I don't think it's that it falls necessarily entirely on party lines. But in terms of Congress and in terms of how this plays out, the Republican Party does not currently, as far as I know, have a platform on climate change. There have been a few Republican members of Congress who have voiced concerns about climate, but it's generally been a Democratic issue. The one place I would say where we've seen demonstrated bipartisan action on climate is in the National Defense Reauthorization Act. That's the act that funds the military every year. And that's the one piece of legislation I frankly think no politician in the United States wants to say they didn't vote for. Very rare that they didn't want to vote for it. And so we found with the pressure that that legislation will pass every year, it has a number of climate provisions have found their way into that bill, including provisions that the military needs to look to the risks for its installation, its military bases from climate change, that it needs to incorporate considerations of climate change in its strategy. So we've seen, I wouldn't say they're wholesale changes, but beginning of changes to drive greater military consideration of the risks of climate change. Well, I think even in the adaptation resilience space, that it's sort of a a back way to get maybe some Republican support. It's like, well, we're infrastructure spending, and you know, maybe those are some of the opportunities that we might see in the in the coming year on some bipartisan support. Is yeah, we're just this is investment in various communities this way. So maybe well, I, I would put one caveat on the infrastructure. We need to make sure there's an insistence that the infrastructure is resilient. And the only way to make sure infrastructure is resilient is to somehow account for future risk. Whether you call it climate change or not, you just have to account for the fact that the way our environment looks today will be very different as a result of warming temperatures, impacts of those warming temperatures. And we need to make sure that any designs, placement of infrastructure accounts for that. Otherwise, we're going to build the bridge that is too low. It's going to get washed away or the rail track that is not uh, can't withstand the heat that's going to come during an extreme heat event. Have to get that into this consideration. Otherwise, we'll build a lot of stuff at great expense that could be destined to fail. Okay, circling back around as we wrap this up in FEMA. So we're getting a new FEMA administrator. I don't think one's been nominated yet. Or and it's a nomination, right? It's not an appointed position. Yes, it's confirmed. It's an appointment uh, confirmed by the Senate. Okay, so we are going to get a new one. And so what are some of the first steps that you think they could take to prioritize climate change? Well, I think they need to rework their strategy and uh, actually put climate change front and center. We, of course, have a new program, BRIC, they call it, but it takes legislation from Congress that says about you can take up to 6% of what we spend on disaster recovery and put that to risk mitigation. I think that they need to think through how can we use that money most effectively to help communities long-term prepare. I think they need to insist on better building codes for those communities that want help from the federal government to recover and better better building and zoning practices uh, so that a taxpayer in Indiana is not paying for helping Floridians who choose to live right next to the water in a very dangerous you know, situation. So we, we need to just figure out how we can make sure that the money that we ask federal taxpayers to give to share to other communities is spent resiliently. And FEMA has a big role in doing that. Before I let you go, any other pieces that you're writing right now, any particular topics you're digging in on that we might talk in a future episode? Well, I just finished a manuscript for a new book. It's called No More. It looks at the pandemic and the lessons we can take from the pandemic and how we can apply those to better preparation on climate change. In addition to working on climate change, when I was at the White House and the Department of Homeland Security, I also worked on biological threats, including pandemics. So I've drawn on some of that knowledge to inform this latest manuscript, which has opened my eyes to some of the challenges that are unique to climate preparedness, but also some of the parallels that we can draw between these two catastrophic risks. And now we have a much better understanding of what catastrophic risk 
looks like when it materializes, unfortunately, thanks to COVID-19. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a fascinating book. We want you to come back on and talk about the book when it's out. I don't know if it's next six months, 12 months. What do you think? Well, they're they're having supply chain disruption <laughs> in the printing world. So it was supposed to come out in April. I think it will come out in the summer. But I thought that was pretty funny because that's one of the subjects of the book is how the disruptions to our supply chains from the pandemic give us an eye on what's in the future with climate change driven disruptions. Uh, and there'll be many to our supply chains. Well, and I'm sure random things will come up that you'll write on in these different publications too, that we might want to drill in and have a discussion around. So you'll yes, be- well, I, and I actually just published a chapter in a book about the Obama White House and how they were able to drive policy on climate change. So perhaps we can discuss that as well. For sure. Alice, always a pleasure. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. What a pleasure. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Dr. Jesse Keenan for coming on and giving us an update on what's happening in the early days of the Biden administration. It seems from Jesse's assessment that adaptation is taking a backseat to mitigation efforts. I agree with Jesse that the early days of an administration really set the tone for the entire term. Hopefully, as the various departments and agencies continue to populate with political appointees, they bring in more people where adaptation is in their DNA and not a box to tick off. We'll see. And we'll do our part here to advocate for resilience and adaptation to be right at the top of their climate agenda. And in no way does this mean mitigation should not be prioritized. We can do both. In fact, they can complement each other, especially when it comes to communicating to the public on what's going on with climate change. And thanks to Alice Hill for coming back to share her thoughts on FEMA. Very relevant discussion, and hopefully with a new administration, we'll see climate change being prioritized. Hurricane season, I'm sure will make that decision easier for everyone. Okay, other business. I want to give a shout out to Dr. Donald Wright, a professor in political science at the University of New Brunswick in Canada. Don has been a longtime listener and we've had a chance to connect back and forth regularly. He recently wrote a book review for Dr. Michael Mann's new book, The New Climate War, in the newspaper, The Globe and Mail. And he put a clever plug in for America Adapts in his review. Thanks, Don. And check out his review. The link is in my show notes. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast via America Adapts, think about using a podcast. Sponsoring an entire episode allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I normally connect with folks at conferences and meetings, but we all know that's been shut down for the past year. So definitely reach out to me directly if you have some ideas for this type of episode. That's how I keep the lights running. So maybe your organization wants to highlight the great work you're doing. Email me at americadaps at gmail.com. And most of you have heard me talk about what I'm doing at Simpatico Studios. Folks at Full Steam Ahead, I'm hosting live talk shows on the Climate Adaptation Channel. I'm interviewing climate adaptation experts, clean energy entrepreneurs, and academics from around the world. It's a whole channel dedicated to climate change, and I'm in front of the, the camera. And speaking of TV studios, consider using Simpatico for your own video production needs. You want to capture a panel, workshop, or even a conference and have something more professional than just a Zoom call to share, then consider using Simpatico. Go check it out in my show notes. Okay, another reminder, we have the Podcast in the Classroom initiative. On the American Apps website, you'll find a link to a page where we have discussion guides developed for 18 of these episodes. It's a very cool resource. Consider using podcasts in your classroom, no matter what venue, high school, college, workplace training. Use some podcasts. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and Facebook community group. Group is private, so you can just contact me to join. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and other listeners are sharing things on the wall. So check it out. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I keep hearing from random people and I love it. Take time to email me just to say who you are. And and if you're in the field, let me know what you do. This is very helpful to me to know who my listeners are and where you are spread out all over the world and sort of the type of work you're doing. And it influences this type of episodes that I create because I want this to be a resource to you. So Please, if you're thinking about it, if you've been a long-time listener and finally get around to it, email me, americadaps at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, check out the website, americadaps.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.